Hello and welcome to another edition of Tapeheads. I am Todd in Portland, Oregon. And I am Blaine in Phoenix. And today we're going to be talking about uh, one of my favorite albums. Uh, well, actually, we're going to specifically going to be talking about um, Don't Stand So Close to Me by The Police. But also talking about Zenyatta Mandata as well. Yes. One of my favorite albums. So Zenyatta Mandata. This is their third album, yeah? Yeah. Outlandus de Amor and Regatta de Blanc. And then this. Were previous to this, and I'm not sure if that was the correct order. Yeah, I think it was, actually. I think it was, too. But the police, um, they were actually starting to do pretty good. At this point, they released Don't Stand So Close to Me, which was the first song off of this album. And it, it when this, the opening synth sound to this um, sends shivers down my spine a lot of times when I hear it. This is a weird song to start an album with, I think. It's yeah, so probably it's, yeah, it's so creepy and it's so unlike most of the other album, at least at the beginning of it. Now, are you talking about musically, or are yeah, you talking yeah. about the the words musically? Uh, okay, it's just like the whole album is super fun, and this is just like very yeah haunting like and yeah dark sounding. Yeah, so the synth comes on, and and to me, it's like it tells me, oh, you're gonna have a good time here because this album is awesome. To me, it's like, what what are we in for? <laughs> this is not the usual police. So what is this song about, Todd? This song is about, well, in his previous life, before he was in the police, Sting was a junior high English teacher. And um, this song is about, I don't think it's about him, but it's about... He, a, says, he says that it was not. He says that it was not, but it, it's about a teacher and a student who kind of have feelings for each other, especially the student. has She has got a crush on her teacher, and the teacher is obviously an adult, and the girl is of uh, undetermined age, but it sounds like she's young because he says this girl is half his age. So we're not dealing with an adult girl here. <laughs> So that's what it's about. Young teacher, the subject of school girl fantasy. She wants him so badly, knows what she wants to be. Inside her, there's longing. This girl's an open page. Bookmarking, she's so close now. This girl is half his age. And he said that when he wrote this, he was at the time they were these they were all three blonde and they, he think he says we were blonde, good looking guys and and our fans we had a lot of screaming teenagers as our fans, so he kind of wanted to write a song that had that kind of of the thing to it. Hmm. Well, you know, it's funny because like being he's a I mean he's an English teacher and he knows about how to craft a story and to, you know, use narrative in a way. You can be an unreliable narrator, which is what kind of this subject of this song is about. And you, when you say I, you're not singing about yourself. <laughs> but, but it does sound like he's either seen this up close, like with a colleague or something, or maybe he's just not telling the truth about whether it happened to him or not. <laughs> 
it seems to it's he seems to have had a little bit of experience with it in some form in the staff room yes there's just so many specifics yeah right right frankly i you know after i got out of high school i heard of a number of issues with teachers at uh one of the high schools in town so i'm mm-hmm. sure this kind yeah, of yeah. stuff happens sometimes yeah it's unfortunately a very common thing this guy was uh he bought a car for this girl and and his wife was a teacher at our high school i don't want to mention oh, his wow. name yeah well, but statute uh, of limitations is probably up <laughs> anyway um yeah so you know obviously this does happen bought her a car it, that's crazy Probably did. Ha- it was a Honda, and probably did happen. How do you know while that? While Sting was teaching, how do you know what kind of car it was? Yeah, oh, it was in the paper. All right. Well, it could be. It could I was just thinking of the president of France, Emmanuel Macron. His wife. He's like forty, and his wife is like sixty-five, and she was his former college professor. So that adds a little. There's that. <laughs> So um, in one of the lines in this book, he says, the old man in that book by Nabokov. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about the book Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. Yes. Who's about an older gentleman. Actually, it's not really, they they say that he's, I've never read the book. Have you? No, I have not. Saw the movie. (laughs) This guy pursues underage girls in this book. Actually, it's his stepdaughter. It's a guy who falls oh, in it? okay. yeah. It's a guy who falls in love with his twelve-year-old stepdaughter and just becomes obsessed with her. In the movie, they tried to make it like she was fourteen. There's a, I mean, there's in some ways there's a huge difference between twelve and fourteen, and in other ways there's not much of a difference. So it's like, it's still just gross. <laughs> and in the awful. eighty-six, the eighty-six version of this song, which we'll talk about later, they're singing slower, and he says in that famous book. By Nabokov. Mm-hmm. Because you had to make it longer, I guess. <laughs> I watched a few, um, oh, there, you know those reaction videos where people put on a song and they react to it on YouTube? I watched uh-huh. a few of those, and almost none of them knew what the book was written. Even though I say that famous book by Nabokov, nobody mentioned it. Nobody seemed to know what it was. Well, I mean, I only, I only know what it is because I have, because, well, f- I looked it up when I heard it, I guess. But otherwise, I wouldn't have known. Well, I mean, I knew because I'm a big reader, but the subject matter just kind of creeped me out enough that I never felt like I wanted to read it. But when the movie came out, it had Jeremy Irons in it. I think it was in the 90s. And uh, it was very good. But, I mean, Jeremy's a very good actor, but, yeah, it's still creepy (laughs) subject matter. So um, I got to see The Police in 2007, June, in Seattle with my friend Russ. Mm. He's actually your friend too. But uh, um, what a great concert! You know, he, I was too young when they were popular um, in in the first off because I think that they kind of right, so was things I. That, well, they ended in '86, and I would have been uh, 15 years old when they ended. So obviously, not going to concerts. You know, when we lived in Yakima, so concerts tended not to come to town there. <laughs> right. So I mean, it was a two and a half hour trip anyway, and I'm not going to talk my dad. Not that I really was wanting to go to the police, I guess, at that time. But hey, Dad, will you take me to Seattle so I can go see the police? Yeah, probably not going to happen. The Seattle police? <laughs> Why would you want to see them? 
Well, my dad knows who the police are. I'm sure he does. <laughs> my mom would have asked about the Seattle police. <laughs> so actually, you know what? I was watching a, um, a video on YouTube the other day, and I was tell- talking to you about this. But you know, the song was um, wrapped around your finger. Where hmm. it's the, the the camera is on Stuart Copeland the whole time, and he's just playing all of the vibes and all of the all everything except for a snare drum, and through the whole song. And you should tell your dad about that. Have him watch that because I know he was a percussionist, right? So hmm. might find that interesting. He doesn't like the rock thing though at all. Yeah, but it's not rock. The way yeah, they're well. doing it, it's all right. Okay, well, don't show him then. I won't. He won't care. I promise you he won't. Um, so anyway. He wouldn't even care about this podcast, I don't think. Don't Stand So Close to Me. Great song. And this this album is awesome, too. And This album is awesome. Um, some of the great songs on this album are Driven to Tears. Canary in a coal mine. 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 You turn that song up in your car. Um, as a matter of fact, this album is turn it up in your car worthy. I mean, this whole album is just recorded great. Who 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 produced this? I don't remember who. Was it Hugh Padgham? I think it might have been Hugh Padgham. I don't know if Hugh Padgham did it. I know he did a lot of Sting stuff. And he did a lot of he did a lot of uh, police stuff too. But I'm not sure if it was this one. Okay. Um, Bombs away. Do 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 da 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 da. Um, Shadows in the rain. Just a great album. Yeah, and it's great all the way through. This "Don't Stand So Close to Me," if I'm honest, is not one of my favorites on this album. <laughs> It's so good all the way through. Actually, this album, Sting as a songwriter, had really grown, I think. Like, the song Driven to Tears, he's talked about this in the past. Like, the song Driven to Tears really, he'd started to see a lot of the world by this time. They'd been all around, and he'd seen a lot of things, and he was starting to broaden his horizons of subject matter for songs. And Driven to Tears is one of those songs that really was like, hey, I don't have to write about just love and prostitutes and stuff. I can write about the world. I can write about experiences that I've been having. Yeah, so I I totally understand that the the first two albums, Outlandish to More and Regatta de Blanc, are really heavy reggae punk type albums, and I'm not talking about it's not boring 
reggae or punk. I oh mean, gosh, not the, at all. Yeah, they're awesome. <laughs> and 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 the the police has one of the most amazing drummers in the history of of rock drummers. Stuart Copeland is incredible. He's incredible to watch. Andy Summers is a very unique guitarist. Absolutely. One of my favorites. And um, just the way he plays is absolutely unique. And then Sting is a great bass player, great vocalist, great songwriter. I mean, they had everything. What did they not have? Friendship or getting along with each other. They just <laughs> they couldn't do it. They, um, I think they had three A-type um, egos. Yeah. To, to deal with this, with we're like this all the time. You know? This is I it. Mean, we'd be like this, this is what tomorrow. You get. But at the moment, I want to have a fight. Yeah. Much better television than your questions. I promise you. Okay. I'll tell you what, should we film me whopping Sting? Yes. That would be good, wouldn't that it? Would that would be great. Let's go. That's that. Okay, in the cars. Let's get out of here. Fighting with each other because, <laughs> yeah. you know, who who's exactly wants to do what the other person does? You know, it doesn't always happen. There's a funny thing in, there's a box set that came out called Message in a Box, after, you know, a retrospective kind of thing. All their albums, everything they ever put out, all released as a box set. And in the booklet of that, there's a funny little interchange between all three of them. And they're talking about, it's like the person, they don't, they aren't interviewed together. They're interviewed separately, <laughs> of course, for this thing. And Sting would say, oh man, Andy and Stuart just could not get along. They're always fighting. And Andy was like, Stuart and Sting were just always at each other's throats. And Stuart was like, Andy and Sting, oh, they just wanted to kill each other. It was just this whole triangular thing. And it's like all of them were just, uh, just, yeah, they couldn't do it. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, two albums later, after Ghost in the Machine and then Synchronicity. together to record and this is in 86 and i don't know i don't know if they were going to record an old whole album but they were going to get together and record i think part of it was they were saying that sting didn't want to write any more songs for the police he was working on his own solo stuff yeah yeah the dream of the blue turtles had come out the year before yeah i think even so, bring on the night had come out by now or by then which is part of that the live version of that tour but they got together to record some songs. And the night before they got into the studio, Stuart Copeland did a somersault over the front of his horse and broke his collarbone. Jeez. Oh, so he could not so he could not drum. And so Andy Summers, what can I say? That whole thing was absolutely torturous. The track is all right, but the originals are much better. Oh, I agree. And I'm talking, and this is talking about uh, "Don't Stand So Close to Me" '86. Yes. This version took three weeks to record. I did my guitar part on the first night, and the rest of the time it was Sting and Stewart hmm. arguing about whether the Fairlight or the Synclavier was better. <laughs> so, <laughs> who cares? Oh my God. So again. I don't know how this is happening, but the Fairlight is now in another one of our podcasts. We have talked about that thing more than anybody we else. We talked about the Fairlight on... Uh, <laughs> Pretty much every episode. <laughs> what, what was that song, The Yes song? That we the Yes did? song, uh, uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart. It was on Band-Aid. Uh, I think it was on... Oh, the other one we talked about, Trevor Horn, Paul McCartney. 
Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so Fairlight, <laughs> if you guys had didn't listen to any of our other podcasts on that, it was this uh, very expensive synthesizer. That yeah, was it's out like at it's the a time. whole workstation computer computer workstation with a synthesizer attached to it. Amazing thing. So Stuart Copeland had one of those or had access to one of those, and he wanted to record the drum part with that because he couldn't play drums. And Sting wanted to use the Synclavier. It's basically the same thing, but not as intricate. It's just like a sampler, yeah, early sampler, just a keyboard based. But it was harder to work with. And they they argued over it for a long time. And then finally they went with the Fairlight to record the drum part for the song. So getting on back onto this Andy Summers thing, he says, uh, the attempt to record a new album was doomed from the outset. The night before we went into the studio, Stuart broke his collarbone falling off a horse, <laughs> and that meant we lost our last chance of recovering some rapport just by jamming together. Anyway, it was clear Sting had no real intention of writing any new songs for the police. It was an empty exercise. I seem to remember this being sort of like a contractual obligation kind of album. I'm sure it probably was. They they probably had with their record company a um you you guys have to do a new album. Yes. And they had a, and so they, I they had a certain number of albums they had to do within a certain number of years and they were kind of starting to fall behind and the record company's like, Hey, come on guys, we need another album from you guys and they're like, This isn't gonna happen. Well, okay, we'll make this single and then we'll just have to do a greatest hits or something because this isn't yeah and that's what they did was yeah. i think it was police the singles mm-hmm. is that what that was called yes. i remember it's the white one yeah yeah um and i think this song was on it was there another new song i don't think i there don't was. think there was um, so Stuart copeland here's his comments on that well my horse did a forward somersault and i was forced to dismount i was entirely venomless sedated as i was by painkillers <laughs> but i managed to fatally insult Sting. We exchanged long, mutually abusive letters and took turns in the studio recording over each other's parts. Yeah, nice. Finally, after wasting several weeks, Miles, who is his brother and was also the uh, band's manager, said, Look, children, you will both have to share the same room to mix this track. I had no problem with this and was there for the mix at 10 o'clock sharp We proceeded to mix while waiting all day for word of our esteemed leader. I was just getting grumpy and beginning to make speeches when Sting showed up with a rose, a hug, and a 12-inch switchblade. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I don't know what to say after that. Yeah, I don't even know what to say after that. (laughs) I I think the song is good. It's certainly not as good as the original, but... uh, and, and again, then again, why did they do that? Probably, there, who who is it that had the album called uh, "Contractually Obligated Album"? I was actually going to say that was Monty Python. Oh, okay. It's All called right. yeah, Monty Python's Contractual Obligation Album, and that's the only reason they put it out. And it's just like a best of, is the exact same thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lie. I think this version sucks. I've never listened to oh, it. Do you? I hate it. It takes everything I love about the Police and just like castrates them. 
like, it, you know, you lose the great drums, you lose the great guitar, you lose the real bass. Everything is just, has no life. I mean, it would be, it's, it, it so reminds there's me. there's no real bass on that song? No, it reminds me of, like, don't call it the police. It's, it sounds like, like a Depeche Mode song or something like that, or a T- Tears for Fears demo. Andy Summers also played MIDI guitar on it, too. Yeah, see? Just one more, one more reason. Like, it's just... Uh, and even the video bothers me. The new video, actually both videos bother me for different reasons, but the new video is exactly the same kind of thing. It looks like you're going to get a seizure when you're watching it because stuff's jumping around all over the place. But also just the way they have these instruments just kind of float across the screen. And they're not actual instruments. They're just like pictures of instruments. They're not being played. They're just, there's a bass and there's a drum, a separate drum. Oh, there's another drum. Oh, because I'm sure they couldn't get together to... To do a new video, I'm sure. No, I know, but the video, I mean, they can, you can put whatever you want in a video. They don't have to be there all at the same time. And they had enough footage of them, they could have flown it in or whatever. But it, it's like it's like the Dire Straits Money for Nothing video, but not as cool. <laughs> but it's like very computer animated and everything is, it, there's just like, man, where's the love? Where's the, where's the band? There's no band in there. They're all separate entities spinning around endlessly. So in the original video... For Don't Stand So Close to Me, Sting is wearing a shirt by that says The Beat on it, which was a band in the early 80s in England. And I'll get to that when we talk about our movie in a minute. And I know you think, how in the world? What, what is he talking about? <laughs> but we will get around to that. I trust you to tie it all together. Wearing a shirt called The Beat. <laughs> Don't Stand So Close to Me, I think is a great song. I love it. But the album itself, with all of the songs together... Great album and a great one to throw in your car and turn the sound up and drive down the road. Agreed. Much better than the Rippingtons. I guess it depends on uh, what kind of music you like <laughs> and if you like the Rippingtons <laughs> and don't like the police. Um, let's talk about the video for a second, the original one. Okay. Um, because a lot of people, I think this is what people were responding to a lot in the video. They're like, what is this song even about? Like, oh, it's creepy. This guy's a creeper and whatever. And I think part of that is... They're like, you know, you see at the beginning, like Sting is a teacher and he's wearing a suit and tie and the girls stand real close to him and stuff. And by the later in the video, they're where the, all the guys in the band are wearing, including Sting, they're wearing like graduation gowns and caps and all that. But Sting's also wearing the tie that he wore as a teacher. So he's kind of blurring the lines between a teacher and student. Which one is he? Is he going to float in both worlds like that? And then at the end of the video... <laughs> He pulls his shirt off completely. No shirt. Sitting at the desk wearing no shirt. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, and then they start dancing around. You know what? Yeah, I haven't seen that video in a long time. I sh- probably should have watched it, but. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of, it's weird. And it's kind of like, why did you, if you're claiming not to perpetuate these kind of rumors and stories it's like you're just playing into them by putting images like that especially with the graduation cap and the tie and like blurring the lines it's like jeez. another thing we haven't done this before but it might be fun to uh break out some music theory on all you mofos there's a piano (laughs) over there almost within reach of my microphone but it kind of there's there are ways you can accentuate creepiness by chord structures or creepiness or happiness or romance or sarcasm or whatever. And so this song, like it starts really low and you know, 
all those super low synthesizers and all that stuff. But when it goes to the chorus, it goes to this... Uh, it goes to it starts with the major chord so that almost hints that no he's not going to be inappropriate with this girl um it's sort of like you know he realizes it's wrong and he's not going to give into it but when it goes to that don't stand so close to me it's these crazy minor chords and that sort of makes you feel like there's some doubt there or maybe he's thinking about it occasionally but then it goes back to the major and it's it kind of shows that no he's gonna get the better of his urges he's not gonna give into them so it's like stuff like that it can make a big difference or if i went to like minor chords or something don't stand don't stand you know it'd be like it would, it would make it more sad or make it creepy or if you're gonna don't stand don't stand it's like i'm a, I'm a shark, and I'm going to eat you when you get in the pool. So in, in the 86 version, did they still follow those same chord progressions? They changed the key of it, and they but string, he did so many. This is like a production choice, and I feel like it. This is another reason I feel like it kind of neutered the song. So it's like jazz chord, jazz chord, jazz chord. You know, there's they're all kind of the same. <laughs> so it loses. There's not the same kind of contrast as there was in the original version. And it kind of, it kind of makes it. You know, there is no contrast between, you know, impure desires and getting the best better of them. It's just like all a bunch of jazz chords. <laughs> it means something completely different, and it loses that creepiness. So I wonder if people would have similar reactions if they're having like. If they're watching the 86 version or they're watching the 1980 version, you know. I never noticed that before. I mean, I knew it was in a different key and it did sound different, but I didn't know about that. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm here for, you know. Gotta break out some music theory every once in a while. <laughs> All right, what movie are we going to talk about today? <laughs> we are talking about Ferris Bueller's Day Off from 1986. Great movie. Um, it's one of the first, well, I don't know if it's the first movie, but uh, breaks the fourth wall. Yes. where Meaning that Ferris talks to the people in the theater or watching the movie, um, which takes you out of, out of the movie, and all of a sudden he's talking to you. Um, so this is about a, how old was, was uh, Matthew Broderick in this time? 24. So a 24-year-old senior in high school yep. with a friend who's 29. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And his sister who's 25 also goes to the same high school. Yeah. Jennifer Grey. Um, <laughs> anyway, he, he decides, he's a senior, and he decides that he wants to call in sick to school for the day. So he pretends to be sick. Of course, his sister is is ticked off because she, why does why does Ferris get to stay home I had the same thing, you would not let me stay home. You'd make me go to school. The key to faking out the parents is the clammy hands. It's a good nonspecific symptom. I'm a big believer in it. Ed Rooney's office. This is George Peterson. 
Oh, uh, please hold. How do you know it's Mr. Peterson? Ed Rooney. Ed, this is George Peterson. How are you today, sir? Well, we've had a bit of bad luck this morning, as you may have heard. Uh, sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, you, uh, you, you just produce a corpse, and uh, I'll release Sloan. You know that school <laughs> policy. Oh. Uh, was this your mother? Uh, no, my wife's mother. Ed Rooney's office. Hi, this is Ferris Bueller. Can I speak to Mr. Rooney, please? Ferris Bueller's online too. So what are the things that he does to pretend like he's sick? He says he licks his palms to make them feel oh, clammy. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because if you if you do a fake um, temperature, your mom may send you to the doctor, and that's way worse than going to school. So he pretends he's sick, and he stays home from school. And he's decided he's going to get up. He showers. He gets all ready. He hangs out outside at the pool at his house, and he calls his friend Cameron. And uh, tells him to get up, and Cameron. Cameron is, is actually sick. He's actually sick, but he's also I, I, he's kind of a hypochondriac. He hypochondriac. Mm-hmm. He makes himself sick because he's so depressed because his parent situation is terrible. I'm taking a day off. Now get dressed and come on over. You can't stupid. that I'm sick. That's all in your head. Come on over. I feel like complete shit, Ferris. I can't go anywhere. I'm sorry to hear that. Now come on over here and pick me up. This, this is ridiculous. Okay, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. With I'll go. Shit. Anyway, one of the things that Ferris does, so he has a synthesizer. It's a sampler. <clears throat> so he is it a Fairlight? Like, no, it is not. <laughs> Surprisingly, first thing we've but, come up with. But he plays. He plays samples of him of coughing and 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 puking and farting. Um all on this thing and he plays it over the phone to to school kids um so that they can really think that he's sick who's he talking to ferris bueller do you know him yeah he's getting me out of summer school we appreciate you letting us know how you're doing we got a buzz keep good thought dude thanks (laughs) shit i hope he doesn't die can't handle summer school wait a minute give me somebody else yeah sure hold on hello hi hi ferris how's your bod Oh, my God, you're dying? Uh-oh. <laughs> and what's funny about this is he complains about that he does not have a car, and this is one of the reasons that he calls his friend Cameron over. Cameron, come over and pick me up. He calls him to come over and pick him up because they're going to go do something, and, and Cameron, I'm sick. But this synthesizer that he has, well, he says that my parents decided not to buy me a car. Instead, they bought me a computer. And it's funny because this synthesizer that he has sitting over in the corner of his room is an $8,000 synthesizer. <laughs> That's how much the Emu Systems Emulator 2 was in 19... Well, when it was released. $7,995 sticker price. That's a lot of that's a lot of cars. A brand new car, a Ford Escort in '86, a brand new Ford Escort, which is the most popular car in '86, hmm. was sixty three hundred dollars, brand new. <laughs> so he's got an eight thousand dollars synthesizer over in the corner, but he does not have a car. His sister has a car. He doesn't have a car. And I thought, well, maybe his dad worked for Emu, and that's how he got a synthesizer in the house. No, nope, I looked it up. From the book, 
The, yeah, the okay. book says that he is a. Well, I, I looked because well, he works in Chicago. Uh, no, Emu uh, headquarters is in California, so he's probably not a salesperson for Emu. So this takes place in Chicago, uh, but I found out uh, there is a book that was written. I don't know if it was written after the movie or for the movie before the movie, but he was a, he sold paper products. There was a book. This was based on a book. I didn't even know that. I don't know if it was based on a book or if the book was written for the movie. Anyway, so the, he's got this eight thousand dollar synthesizer. Now, eight, hold on. Let me stop for a second. Eight thousand dollars is expensive to have as a synthesizer for a senior in high school who doesn't really know how to play. But this is eight thousand dollars in nineteen eighty six, which is like thirty thousand dollars now. Yeah. So a Fairlight, by comparison, was like twenty thousand dollars back then, even earlier. So yeah, that was the price of a house. <laughs> In England. Um, anyway, the movie is so funny. I went and saw it when I was a kid, and I looked up to Ferris, you know. <laughs> Just all the things he did. He did all this. <laughs> also, I, re- I read in the book. I didn't read the book, but he stole one of his, um, what do you call it, when uh, savings bonds that his dad bought for him when he was a baby. And that's how he paid for all the stuff they did. They went to a baseball game. They ate at a French restaurant. Hello, may I help you? You can sure as hell try. Hi, I'm Abe Froman. Party of three for 12. Is there a problem? You're Abe Froman. That's right. I'm Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. Yeah, that's me. Listen, young man, entre nous, I'm very busy here. Why don't you take the kids and go back to the clubhouse? Are you suggesting that I'm not who I say I am? I'm suggesting that you leave before I have to get snooty. Him, Cameron, and his girlfriend, uh, Sloan? Sloan Peterson. Sloan. Um, anyway, so his uh, principal is after him the whole time. Oh, oh, here's another thing, Todd. That you'll, you'll find this funny. So he has nine absences on this. And what does he do? He gets on his computer and logs into the computer system at his high school and makes it go down to like two absences and this is kind of a nod he did the same thing in the movie war games just like war games (laughs) yeah changing his grades so um let's see what else happened in this movie so his he's only 20 years old playing a high school student in that one (laughs) oh that's that's that seems a little better um so his principal's after him the whole time it's just it's a it's a funny movie and the principal is jeffrey jones who uh you know anything about Jeffrey Jones? It's always weird to see him in a movie after being busted for child pornography. Well, there it is. He was also in Howard the Duck, since we talked about Howard the Duck last time. Also terrible. So this this movie is a little bit different because in the end, he is on a float in this parade in Chicago and he sings Twist and Shout. Lip syncs. Didn't sing it. Right, right. Anyway, so... This, because this movie was so popular, it brought the Twist and Shout song back on the charts. 23 years later, after it was released initially. Oh, wow. And it came out to be number 23 on the charts, and it was on the charts for seven weeks. I don't know where I saw this, but I saw a thing that said Paul McCartney didn't love that version because it had too much brass in it. Well, it did. It had brass in it. 
and they didn't ever have that on there. And and John Hughes, the the director of the movie, said he felt bad for offending Paul, <laughs> um, but said there was a band there and they were playing along, so we had to do it. One of the other things they did on this is they went to the Art Institute of Chicago, and Cameron is staring at the painting. Uh, oh, the Surat the painting. The Surat the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday afternoon, afternoon on the island of Le Grand Jot. I don't know. You speak Maybe. French. Yes, but I don't remember the name of the... Le Grand Jot. Anyway, I have... Been, I mean, how's it spelled? Uh, well, I'm not going to spell it. Well, what's the Latin? J-A-T-T-E. Jot. Jot. Close enough. So uh, I have been to that. I have been to that uh, art institute, and I saw that painting as well. Oh, cool! And I also saw um, American Gothic. Cool. Which is the painting yeah. with the uh, the farmer with the pitchfork and his yeah. wife's wife. And, yeah. Did you go to the Sears Tower too? I did. I did not do what they did, um, <laughs> putting their heads on the thing. But I did go to the Sears Tower, and uh, what's the other one? Hitchcock. Hitchcock? No, I've never I been to Chicago. It's called. Um, Chicago's on my the, list of places, but I've never been there. Really yeah, want to go. Great. Yeah, it looks great. Um, this the songs on this movie are great. Oh the yeah, song by Yellow. Soundtrack is great. Uh, what's the Yellow song? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Great song. Then there's this song, and I'm going to get back to this here. One hit wonder. This is a song by the English Beat called March of the Swivelhead. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, this is when he's running home. This song is playing. Todd and I went and saw Sting in 1991. Yes. And the band Soul Cages Tour. Yeah. The band that opened for Sting was called The Special Beat. Special Beat. Which is a mix between the English Beat and the Specials. Yep. I don't know if they played this song there. I have no clue. I don't think we they did. Have... Okay. The only I person... didn't know. I didn't know them at the time. I didn't either. The only person that uh, did know was our friend Drew, who was there with us. And the, the people, the guys in the band, would be like, "Hey, come on, everybody, sing along!" And Drew knew all the drum fills and stuff. He's like, bah, 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 playing them in the air and everything. And he was the only one around. Knew any of them? And we're looking at him like, "What in <laughs> the hell? How do you know this?" <laughs> So a couple of things you might not have known is the mother and father in this movie got married. Oh, wow. Together. And they stayed together till like 92 or something. Um, Matthew Broderick and Jennifer Grey got engaged. I did see that. Yeah. And, wow, uh, that's a trip. They were, she was in the car with him when he got in that car accident in Ireland that killed those two women. Mm, I didn't hear about that. Oh, you never heard about that? No, I did not. He was in Ireland, and it was raining one night, and he got in a wreck while they were driving, and the passengers in the other car died. Oh, man. He got he got knocked unconscious, and Jennifer Grey was like the only one that was awake or whatever, and of course, she's freaking out, and, but she said that he wasn't drinking or anything. It was just an accident, mm. but uh, you know that kind of screwed them, and it just happened right before her Dirty Dancing movie came out. And she got a nose job. Did it have anything to do with that? It did not. Okay. And it's funny, she got a nose job. I think she looks 10 times better, but then it kind of screwed her career up because yeah. they didn't remember her from before. I, I have to go on record and say, I don't love this movie anymore. I used to when I was in high really? school. I don't love it. I had a hard time slogging through it this time. 
Um, I haven't seen it in a few years. Um, I guess it was, I guess I, the last time I saw it was in during COVID. So I've seen it kind of recently, but before that it had been a while and I was like, yeah, this is all right. And then the last couple of times I've seen it, I'm like, I just don't find it fun. I think Ferris is a jerk to everybody. Um, he just manipulates everybody and he's kind of like a little, with his little with his parents and stuff. It just, I don't know. He's just kind of a Weasley dude that just wants to do whatever he wants whenever he wants. And that's definitely adult me looking back at him. But yeah, yeah I, I definitely disagree with you. On that, I think <laughs> it's a very funny movie and yeah, he's so what it's a movie and you don't have to agree with the way. Every, yeah. No, you, know, no. you can like movies and people kill each other and, yeah, no, I know. I think I, movies but, are, are this suspense of belief anyway. Yeah, I know. I, I just, I don't know. I just didn't find it fun anymore. Uh, there's other movies, like some of these have been great to go back to. Back to the Future will always be fun. Ferris has not been so fun for me. It's like, that's okay. And Ferris also cares. He cares for, for Cameron a lot. Does he though? I mean, I know he, yeah, he does. He does. I guess by the end he sort of does. Yeah, he does, and he he really wants him to stand up to his father because otherwise, throughout his whole life, he's going to be that way. But yeah, whatever. I think it's a great. Yeah, movie. I mean, you, that's fine. I'll, I'm sure I'll watch it again at some point, you know. But uh, yeah, it's okay that we both don't love it. All right. Well, hey, thanks for joining us today on Tapeheads. This has been Siskel and Ebert. Anyway, we will catch you next time. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can uh, write to us at uh, tapeheads80 at gmail.com. We have an Instagram presence now, small but growing. <laughs> we'll put we'll put links to all this stuff. Yeah, we'll put we there's links if you go back you can see and we'll put the link for the um, wrapped around your finger when I'm talking about the video of of Stuart Copeland. We'll put that in there so you can see that on YouTube. Anyway, oh, and and oh, some yeah. of these other things we'll put on. Cool. And uh, anyway, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.